0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak and I'll be your host. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Brandon R. Byrd about his book, The Black Republic, African Americans and the Fate of Haiti, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. Dr. Byrd is Assistant Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. The Black Republic examines the multitude of attitudes towards Haiti in the post-Civil War period. Following emancipation, Black leaders across the nation either looked to Haiti as an example of Black self-determination or held concerns over whether the nation should stand out as an expression of what Black governance looked like. Bird's exploration of the complicated intellectual history surrounding African American leaders' relationship to Haiti sheds new light on an earlier period of Black internationalism. Dr. Bird, welcome to the program. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate you having me. All right. So I guess to get things started, can you give our listeners an idea of what got you interested in this project and why you felt that you wanted to look at this?
1: Yeah. Uh, So I always say that I stumbled upon it by accident. Uh, During my junior year, senior year of college, actually the period in between, uh, I was entering into this uh, honors program uh, for history majors. And as part of that, Uh, you had to complete a uh, senior thesis. And for mine, I wanted to research uh, Charles Clinton Spaulding, who was a Black North Carolinian and is most famous for leading the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company for basically the first half of the 20th century. And during that period, North Carolina Mutual was uh, the largest uh, Black insurance company in the nation. And so I was really interested in him as a, uh, a a black leader in a place that was really the the epicenter, if you will, of the uh, civil rights struggle in North Carolina, and how he uh, sort of navigated those politics. And part of a large part of the interest is that I'm from North Carolina, uh, so it was really a, a pursuit of a topic that. Uh, was not only, you know, quote unquote, historically important, but also had a real sort of personal tie in. And lo and behold, in his papers, uh, I stumbled upon this trip he took with a number of other uh, Black leaders of his era uh, to Haiti. Uh, he went there in 1937, so right after uh, the US occupation of Haiti. And that was very unexpected. And it led me to ask a number of questions about. You know why did uh, Spalding pursue these connections? Why did he, in his words, want to throw up a highway between uh, the Negroes of the United States and those of Haiti? Uh, just what was going on there? What was the uh, the ba- the background, the foundations of that interest in Haiti? What were the ideas that motivated him? Uh, and so, uh, from there, uh, eventually going to grad school first at William and Mary, then UNC. Uh, I really. Uh, decided to try to pursue those uh, questions to broaden out from beyond this uh, sort of story about Spalding to one about how black intellectuals and activists uh, writ large uh, conceptualize Haiti and why they conceptualize it in the ways that they did.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's always a really cool thing when, you know, people can kind of get into history that's sort of around them. And, you know, finding someone like, you know, Spalding, who's from, you know, the area that you grew up in and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know for myself when I was in college and everything like that, I'm from Virginia And I kind of got into my area just by studying, you know, George Mason, because everyone in Mm -hmm. Virginia absolutely loves George Mason for some reason (laughs) when it comes to slavery. And so I I think that's really cool in terms of like, you know, for any aspiring historians out there, like, you know, you don't have to just stumble across something in some dusty room or everything. Like, look around Mm -hmm. you. There's plenty of history. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And so I guess for people who are less familiar with this history, can you tell our listeners, you know, give them a brief history of, you know, Haiti up to the point that your book starts and sort of the U.S. relationship uh, with this country? Yeah, for sure.
1: Both Haiti and the United States, they're they're born in a similar moment. They're born in, uh, you know, the age of revolutions. Uh, So they have some... Broadly speaking, simultaneous but definitely divergent births. Right, uh, yeah, the United States is a slaveholding republic. Haiti is a product of an anti-slavery and an anti-colonial revolution. Those uh, those differing origins certainly shape uh, the relations between the two, not only from their very beginnings, but then throughout. Uh, their histories, right? Uh, I, I guess the things that may be most familiar uh, to readers are uh, the ways in which uh, diplomatic relations between the two countries uh, throughout most of the 19th century are, uh, in, a, in a very literal sense, non-existent. Uh, the United States refuses to recognize Haiti, uh, basically from Haiti's birth in 1804, the end of the Haitian Revolution until 1862, until the Civil War, uh, when you do not have this, uh, uh, critical mass of, of white Southerners, uh, fighting to block the recognition of Haiti. Uh, in that, that policy of non-recognition is, is certainly indicative of, uh, of larger, uh of larger ways in which uh Haiti occupies this very peculiar place in the US, in the white US imagination, uh occupies a place as a uh as a black uh country and black as being uh you know spectral in a sense, right? Uh that it looms over uh over US politics, it looms over US culture uh in a way that it embodies uh at times some of the worst fears of say white planters in the US South, right? Um uh, now there's certainly a, a history too right? when we talk about uh relations between Haiti and the US, we have to talk about relations between Haiti and uh black Americans too, right? Uh yeah. at the same time that uh for you know perhaps most famously for folks like Thomas Jefferson, Haiti looms over their imaginations in the spectral sense. Uh, it's certainly for much of the 19th century. Uh, it's inspirational. Uh, it is aspirational for African-Americans as a place where slavery was overthrown as a place where uh, black folks achieved independence. Right. Uh, it's uh, it. it it occupies uh, for African Americans a no less important place in that political imaginary. Uh, and so that's that's really the sort of background uh where I where I begin with in the book. Uh now, with all that said, I'm very much interested in uh a period that's a bit lesser known in the relations between Haiti and the United States, uh, this uh late 19th, early 20th century moment uh where uh the u s emergence after the civil war as an, an industrial self imagined power uh very much interested in uh consolidating its control in the western hemisphere uh and at that moment, haiti really exists at the nexus of uh not only u s thinking about race but also u s imperialism uh you know to make that more concrete I, before the U.S. occupation in 1915, U.S. warships are basically uh, off the shores of Port-au-Prince uh, on a yearly basis. Uh, it's uh, it, it's a time period where, uh, to quote uh, historian Rayford Logan, where Haiti goes from being a pariah uh, to being a prize for the United States.
0: And so during the beginnings of diplomatic relations, as you, you know, you were talking about just now, you know, it goes from, you know, a non-existent relationship to something that kind of just is, you know, quite sudden in a a certain sense. And so how does this, you know, new diplomatic relationship between Haiti and the United States um, kind of factor in to the beginnings of your story that you're telling here and how does the response by black americans to the beginning of diplomatic relations between Haiti and the US sort of uh introduce a sort of kind of divergent divergence between some black leaders and other ones that you kind of study throughout the book.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the uh the word that that I'm hearing you get at there that that's really critical here is uh official recognition right uh because there there had been uh certainly for for much of the nineteenth century there had been uh a great deal of commerce between the u s uh and haiti uh there'd even been some uh informal Uh, I guess informal is not the way, some less formal uh, diplomacy between the two. Historians like Ron Johnson show how uh, even early U.S. uh, presidents, including John Adams, uh, had entertained uh, uh, the formation of diplomatic relations with Haiti. Right. Uh, But it's in 1862, with that granting of formal official uh, recognition, uh, that has enormous meaning. Uh, to
2: african Americans uh it's a a recognition that African Americans see as uh really speaking to their uh i
1: guess speaking to uh, their own concerns is not the way to put it uh it's it's an act that act of
2: formal recognition is something that African Americans see as being uh possibly analogous uh, to their own recognition as a free self-determining
1: people. Uh, so put another way, the acknowledgement of Haitian independence, finally, at last, uh, to African Americans could be a portent of a similar uh, recognition. Of themselves as a collective free people emergent from slavery, right? If Haiti could be recognized on an international scale as an equal nation, as a sovereign nation, as part of, in the parlance of the day, uh, of the sisterhood of nations, well,
2: then wouldn't Black Americans, you know, be recognized As U.S.
1: citizens, in more expansive terms, as self-determining people, you know, able to uh, dictate their own institutions, to uh, own their own land, own property, uh, to dictate their own futures. Right. Uh, So put simply uh, that official uh, recognition, it really is a central part of this moment of possibility Uh, in 1862, 63, uh, moving forward into uh, 64, 65, the end of the civil war, right? It's, it is on par with the issuance of the emancipation proclamation with the surrender at Appomattox with uh, the end of the
2: civil war with uh, all of the uh all of the happenings that seem to
1: uh augur a broader future for african americans right uh and and you can we can understand why we can see why uh there would be that uh that significance attached to it right uh for generations uh black americans they had uh, uh they had looked to haiti as uh this model uh, black Republic as a singular Black Republic, right? Uh, so when the status of the singular Black Republic changes in a positive way, seemingly, uh, African Americans are going to attach uh, even greater significance to that, right? Uh, now, as you point out, you know th- that's the sort of the symbolism, the the abstract nature of it. Uh, there's more complexity to it. Uh there's complexity when uh the the Haitian diplomat shows up and uh, African Americans, I argue, of all classes are very interested in uh in literally greeting him. And you know, there's not necessarily a reciprocal relationship, right? Uh there's complexities when uh you know they're is very clearly this formal recognition, but, uh, rhetorically white Americans, uh, don't lend Haiti any more respect in the 1860s than the 1870s. And they did in the 1820s or 1840s. Right. Uh, and so then African-Americans have to grapple with what do they do with that? Right. Uh, what do we do with, uh, this imagined relationship to Haiti, uh, when Haiti also exists uh, in
2: the white imagination in, uh, you know, far different terms, right? Uh, how do we, uh, as some African but put it, how do we manipulate that?
0: and i think for me you know when i was reading over this you know i'm i'm just and when you're speaking about it just now i'm kind of really struck by uh you know just the kind of when you think about just like how revolutionary this would have been for a lot of people during this time period you know you know you're talking about a nation where america had not had you know, an official diplomatic relationship with. And then during the civil war, you know, after, you know, the kind of the war is taking this turn where it is becoming something about slavery and suddenly, you know, the kind of lone black Republic is finally being recognized. And I think, you know, particularly for historians and, you know, people who are familiar with this time period, it's so easy to kind of have a cynical lens of like, we all know what's coming, We all know know, this whole kind of, you know, vision for a better future does come eventually crashing down on black Americans. But, you know, I kind of when reading it, I'm just like I'm struck by just how much, you know, there is this possibility for kind of a brighter future. And I really like how you develop that in the book.
1: Yeah. and I I, I tried to. To just dig down into the micro, if you will, right. Uh, of course, Washington is uh, among African Americans is a very diverse wartime Washington is a very diverse uh, population, right? Uh, you have sizable camps of uh, freed people would flock there from, uh, you know, the surrounding environments. You you had an established class uh, of you know, what we would call uh, black professionals in Washington, right? Uh, and I, I think for all of them, right we we can as best we can, right we can try to imagine what it meant when you literally have black folks. You have the Haitian minister and uh his uh, his cabinet uh showing up to official functions in washington d c uh sitting down with uh the political elite. Of Washington, right, advocating for a black state, uh, I and mean, that's as you put it. I mean, that's that's monumental, not only in sort of a abstract uh, political sense, but in a very like literal sense. You know, people, you could see that. You could see where the the Haitian uh, diplomat lived. Right? Uh black Washingtonians could see that. Uh they they know where he goes to mass. You know, course, he doesn't go to the uh black Protestant churches as a number of African Americans would have liked, uh, but they know where he's moving around DC, right? And where's he, where he's moving is both in a literal and a non literal sense, where he's moving are places where African Americans had not been, right? uh
2: yeah you know, as you put it like that that's there are possibilities there uh there there are there are different futures uh that are embodied by
1: that haitian diplomat that are captured that are encompassed by the diplomatic recognition of
2: haiti.
0: And I guess moving on to you know another big sort of you know event when it comes to Haiti is you know the idea that it kind of comes about in America of you know, expanding and annexing Haiti, which along and the Dominican Republic, which I think a lot of people who don't study this history probably don't even know exists. I know I only found out about this, you know, probably earlier this year um, when reading other books. And I was kind of dumbfounded because, you know, there's so many parts of this history that were obviously just never taught in school. And so, you know, What were the responses by Black Americans to, you know, the kind of calls by some people to annex and expand into, you know, the Black Republic? Yeah,
1: yeah. So
2: I'll I'll preface all this by saying one thing that we have to remember that I
1: also try to be cognizant of uh, is ex- exactly what we talked about in the, uh, the previous question is that uh, th- there is some optimism in this moment, right? You know, there, there's, there's certainly apprehension too, right? Uh, at the same time where uh, you know, the political status of African Americans is changing, you have uh, massive and uh, violent white backlash uh, to, for instance, black voting. Uh, in the South, to uh, Black attempts to gain property ownership in the South, right? Uh, So there's optimism and apprehension, right? Uh, But with that optimism, right, uh, you know, there's a feeling among some Black intellectuals and activists that uh, this is a new United States, right? Uh, That this is a reborn United States that uh, with the defeat of the slave power, with the defeat of the Confederacy... That this is a United States that can be born reborn on these founding principles of uh of equality, human equality. it can be reborn on the principles of racial egalitarianism now encoded in a uh, revised constitution right uh and so some of
2: that influences attitudes towards expansion annexation uh perhaps the uh, the most, I guess the most impactful case, if you will, would be
1: Frederick Douglass, uh, who is, he? he's probably at the forefront of promoting these ideas of a United States that was reborn or at the very least could be reborn on uh, these egalitarian principles, on these Republican principles. Uh, and so for him and a number of other black intellectuals and activists, uh, U.S. expansion could be a force for good now that to annex, uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic could be a way of, uh, helping to modernize those countries, uh, that it could be a way of, uh, of bringing other black people, uh, under a government in which they could be full-fledged uh, citizens, that they could be part of uh, a great democracy. Now, <laughs> a lot of those attitudes are also premised on some assumptions about uh, Haitians, for example. Right, they're premised on some exump- uh, some assumptions that, uh, well, uh, you know, Haiti could use some modernization right? That it could use the influence uh, of the United States, right? Uh, uh, Those assumptions come through uh, pretty clear in the writings of, uh, for example, Benjamin Tucker Tanner, right? A future bishop of uh, the AME Church, uh, editor of uh, the AME's Christian recorder, uh, for whom uh, expansion and annexation are not only tied up into these ideas about what this reborn United States could become, But they're also tied up into uh, uh, very much these religious sensibilities, a a real sort of crusading
2: spirit uh, where uh, uh, the by exporting
1: not only U.S. industrial strength, cultural values, uh, religion. black people, black Americans could not only benefit, uh, Haitians, uh, but they would also be, uh, in some sense uh fulfilling, uh, their mission as, uh, good Christians, as good Protestants. Right. Uh, so there's a, there's, I guess the, the long or the short answer would be that there's, a, there's a whole lot of complexity on, uh, these opinions about expansion, annexation, uh, during this period of civil war reconstruction and these attitudes on expansion annexation of Haiti, they are certainly tied up into broader, uh, hopes. They're tied up into broader, aspirations. They're tied up into broader, uh, apprehensions, uh, during this, uh, just absolutely tumultuous era.
0: And so when we're thinking about, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, official responses to um, Haiti and kind of the official relationship that is building here, one of the things that you talk about is why and how important uh, kind of these official diplomatic positions are for African Americans trying to go to Haiti. And, you know, I think most people could kind of imagine like, oh, like, people want a title or people just want an important position, something like that. But you kind of, you go into like why these positions are actually meaningful beyond just those kind of baseline, you know, kind of surface level, you know, aspirations, why they would be important for black Americans during this time period. And so can you give our listeners a kind of idea of why that is? Yeah.
1: Uh, so I'll say that
2: there is, there is definitely some, uh, there there's some part of part
1: of the attraction of these positions is definitely that they are good paying positions at a time when even for the most prominent african americans and really we're talking about black men here uh even for those most prominent black spokesmen uh well paying positions they're not exactly you know falling off trees right uh so to get uh what's called the Haitian plum, to get that position, uh there there's very clear material benefits, right? Uh but you're you're absolutely right. And what I do emphasize in the book is that beyond that, uh there's greater value attached to it. Uh that diplomatic post in Port-au-Prince. That's uh for one, it being Uh, basically the highest uh, federal position for African Americans, uh, it's a way to affirm uh, Black people's place in U.S. politics and public life. It's a place to, and this is something that uh, Black diplomats routinely say in their applications for the position. Uh, Ebenezer Bassett, the first Black diplomat in U.S. history, says this before, as he's applying uh, for that post in Haiti, uh, that this will affirm uh, African Americans uh new status in the United States. And in in many ways it does, right? Uh that these black diplomats uh to Port-au Prince that they are members of the federal government. Something that was uh, unimaginable uh, for most of US history. All of US
2: history uh before that period, right? Uh, so the there there's real there is real value beyond that uh, uh, the, there's real
1: value beyond that just material gain for that individual diplomat right uh, there's a material value uh for black folks as a collective right uh even beyond that, I will say that many of these diplomats uh they they really hope to direct u s foreign policy uh when they're in haiti uh We could talk about whether once they're in that position, how much ability they have to, you know, to curtail U.S. empire. But they did not imagine themselves as unthinking tools of the U.S. state. Right. Uh, They really do hope uh, to. uh, To serve the U.S., They they do not go there with the intention of undermining the U.S., right? Uh, But at the same time, they do hope uh, to benefit Haiti, right? They want to be fair to Haiti. Uh, And to a slightly lesser extent, they also go there with the understanding that to be fair and equitable to Haiti, uh, to help it deal uh, as an equal on the international stage with the United States, uh, would also benefit African Americans. Uh, that they, they have the understanding that, uh, as Haiti does well materially, uh, as its international standing rises, that that will only, only benefit, uh, African-Americans, uh, in the United States. Right. Uh, so there, there's just massive import- importance of that diplomatic position in Port-au-Prince.
2: Uh, right. That's, uh that it it it's it, it takes some some historical imagining some uh it it really requires
1: a, a shifting of our perspective to really get at why that was so important. We have to remember that this is the era before uh decolonization uh in Africa. This is uh the period before uh uh, before black black diplomats are going to go anywhere other uh, than Haiti, uh, Haiti and Liberia, right? Uh, so it's it's uh, to reiterate just the language that African Americans use uh, to talk about it. Uh, this is the Haitian plum, right? It is the definition of
2: a plum position.
0: And you know, in terms of talking about how uh, you know these diplomats and. In- people, just everyday people as well, are trying to kind of, you know, change perceptions about Haiti. One of the things that you talk about is this thing called the Haitian Republic controversy. Mm -hmm. And so could you briefly explain what this is to our listeners? And then how does this influence the kind of perceptions of Haiti? Why is this Mm -hmm. important during this time period for how Haiti is viewed uh, in, you know, in America and, you know, as you say, both among black people, but also kind of in the white imagination.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, let me just. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how to, uh, to boil a complex uh,
1: diplomatic crises down, uh, you know, into a, uh, into a response that won't take all day. Uh, so so basically, <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Uh, so basically, uh, the Haitian president uh, at the time. Uh, so the, this uh, controversy occurs in 1888. Uh, the Haitian president uh, Lysias Salomon is he's overthrown. Basically, uh, so he is viewed amongst a wide swath of Haitians, particularly among. Uh, uh, Haitian professional class, Haitian leads as being corrupt, as uh uh trying to make himself has hit as the president for life. Uh so after he's overthrown, a struggle for power ensues uh and two main uh contenders for the presidency uh emerge, uh two generals, uh Florville Hippolyte
2: uh and uh Francois Legitimé. Now the the Crisis is indicative of a trend,
1: not only in that period but a recurring trend throughout Haitian history, and that is foreign meddling in internal Haitian politics. Ipeolite is backed by the United States, who's eager to see him power, to see him in power, uh, believing that he will be more uh, receptive to U.S. Uh, business and government interests. Uh, for his part, Ipeolite. Had uh made some very vague uh uh statements, uh expressions of being willing uh to cede
2: uh some territory to the US. Uh these are very vague. Legitime was backed by France. Okay. In backing uh Ipoli, the US government also uh
1: it essentially is in cahoots with this uh steamship operator named William P. Clyde. Uh Clyde is the one who's funneling arms and munition to Epolite. One of the ships being used to funnel arms uh to
2: Ypolite is called the Haitian Republic. Okay. Understandably, uh uh Legitime seizes.
1: Uh, the Haitian Republic, knowing that it's funneling arms to its rival. Uh,
2: The U.S. press immediately cries out. This is an affront
1: uh, to U.S. power. It's an affront to uh, this emergent U.S. empire. It's an affront because the country that has seized the Haitian Republic is a black country. And so the language is very much racialized about how how could Haiti do this? You know, they're they're essentially calling Haiti and Haitians uppity. Uh, So for many, and and this is not something that we just see in retrospect, uh, it's obvious at the time that many in the black press that they uh, they immediately identified the racial the racialized dynamics at play here. Uh, they immediately recognize that uh as the State department formulates its response uh that this is a response that is going to be heavy handed because haiti is a black country uh the black press as they uh condemn uh the actions of the state department uh basically in recovering uh the haitian republic uh that they uh They identify uh, Haiti as really existing at the nexus of U.S. racism and U.S. empire. Uh, They draw parallels uh, between Haiti's situation and the situation that African Americans in this post-Reconstruction era are uh, finding themselves in, as being subject to uh, wanton violence, as being subject to a different form of justice, right? Right. Uh, and so it really solidifies uh, for many Black intellectuals and activists, and uh, I, I emphasize the Black press here, it really solidifies this idea of, of Haiti as being uh, a site where one could really identify uh, the threats to Black sovereignty, to Black self-determination on an individual collective even national level, it really solidifies this i uh, this really fundamental idea at the heart of black internationalism of uh solidarity transnational solidarity, the pursuit of common cause right uh it's
2: uh it solidifies that um uh, that idea too that um that
1: were it not for Uh, U.S. interference that that Haiti could potentially fulfill its potential, uh, for lack of better words, right? Uh, So there's all that happening. Uh, I'll add too that most immediately, the Haitian Republic uh, crisis is the precursor to Douglas's diplomatic tenure. Uh, So Douglas, Frederick Douglas is the most famous African-American diplomat to Port-au-Prince in this era. And when he goes there, he is, he is going there in the aftermath of the Haitian public crisis. And what he is asked to do is to uh, basically secure for the United States Haitian territory that the U.S. government says he promised to the United States for funneling arms and munition to them. So there's a lot going on there, right? Uh, What I argue is that this is a, it it may be an overlooked moment in U.S.-Haitian diplomacy, right? Uh, But it is one that really encapsulates a lot of broader themes and histories between uh, the United States and Haiti, Haiti the United States, African-Americans in Haiti, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I mean for me, you know, when you know kind of looking at this history and the way you present it, it and, and you kind of talked about this uh in your answer just now, it's just, you know, how much, you know, Haitian history and then African American history is really kind of, you know, kind of it encapsulates or not encapsulates. Let me put that again. Let me try that again. Um <clears throat> You know, when you're talking about this, one of the things that kind of strikes me about, you know, this whole affair and kind of Haitian history in general and African American history in general is just how much of it is kind of wrapped up in, you know, the kind of US nation state always kind of getting in the way and trying to get its own way over the way, over what other people want, particularly, you know, in this case, whether it be. Haitian black people or African American black people in the nation in one way or another it's always the United States sort of trying to get its own way over you know what these people want. Yeah.
1: I would agree.
2: Uh the, uh the US government and uh the US government is...
1: So let uh, try that again. The US government and US business interests which are increasingly intertwined in this moment in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, uh, that they feel that their wants should dictate Haitian policy, Haitian governance. Uh, I, I, I say, I, I think, I argue that that is inarguable. Uh, for one sort of data point, William P. Clyde, who I mentioned as being that steamship operator. Bundling arms uh, to Yip-A-Lit. uh, he not only is the proprietor who owns all the steamships that uh uh that are uh basically plying this route between uh Haiti and the United States, uh he is the legal client of the US Secretary of the Navy. So when the US Secretary of the Navy argues that uh to secure Territory to secure uh, access to ports is critical for U.S. military interests. He is also speaking for William P. Clyde, who says that to have access to these these ports is very critical for uh, my business and U.S. private business interests. And the same is true uh, vice versa. William P. Clyde argues that uh, we need X, Y, and Z for U.S. capital. In the Caribbean, he is voicing the interests of the U.S. Secretary of Navy,
2: right? Uh, strategic interests, the interests of U.S. capital. Uh, these things are inseparable. <laughs>
0: And so, you know, you've mentioned Frederick Douglass already, um, but to take uh, another kind of black intellectual that I think many of our listeners would be familiar with is um, Booker T. Washington. And one of the things that you talk about in your book is the, um, the Negro problem, as it's called during this time period, um, and how Haiti is a part of that. And then when it comes to Booker T. Washington, how he thinks about both the Negro problem and and Haiti. And so how does this, you know, kind of complicated relationship between, you know, this African-American intellectual, you know, this kind of larger cultural force of um, kind of racism in America and in Haiti kind of work itself out yeah, during yeah. this time period? So uh,
1: the Negro problem, and, and I uh, I draw a lot on uh, other scholars who, who've written about this, uh, Khalil Muhammad, for example, uh, the Negro problem is... Uh, it boils down really to this idea, this question uh, that really pervades white American discourse. Could African-Americans exist in freedom? Could they exist as part of a modern industrialized society? Right. Uh, and the basic premise of that question is that, uh, of course, that African-Americans are a problem, that they are a disconcerting and aberrant part of U.S. democracy. Right. What do we do with them? as a free people. We knew what to do with them as enslaved people. We do, do with them as a free people. Uh, now wh- where, where I push this forward is to show the the international dimensions of that idea, right? Uh, for many white Americans. And I say many of these are, um, these, le- these are learned men, right? These are Nathaniel Southgate Schaller, Harvard scholar, right? Uh, Haiti supposedly proved the basic premise of the Negro problem. It supposedly proved that Black people could not thrive in freedom. It supposedly proved that uh, uh, Black people could not exist independent of white control. And to make that argument, they would uh, they would write and say all sorts of wild things. They would write that, uh, well, uh, Haiti, before the Haitian Revolution, it was a not only a very prosperous place, but slavery there was very benign. It was easy. Uh, and we know that mortality rates, uh, they outstrip birth rates uh, in uh, pre-independence Haiti in Saint-Domingue. Uh, it was one of the most brutal slave societies in the Americas. uh anyways, uh, so uh, Haiti, when when it sits at, at the center of this discourse and Negro problem, Uh, Both in a material and abstract sense, it becomes very critical for black intellectuals at the turn of the century. Uh, For Booker D. Washington, for example, uh, if Haiti became, in his words, a respected Negro nationality, then it would disprove the claims of white Americans. So he recruits Haitians, uh, Haitian students to Tuskegee. uh, And many Haitians are eager to come to Tuskegee. They see it as a great opportunity to uplift themselves. he believes that
2: to uh export the politics of a racial uplift uh to uh
1: to really ensure that Haiti could uh produce for itself that it could achieve material prosperity that it could uh, uh, achieve a uh, An economic independence, that its international stature would improve. And then by extension, African-Americans' stature would improve as well. Uh, So Booker T. Washington, he is far from being alone in this. Uh, He really applies this idea that uh, material and moral improvement and also, representation matter as an antidote to racism. He really extends that to his thinking about Haiti. Uh, now, th- this, you know, as I, as I write, like this is conservative in many ways, of course, right? If you argue that material and moral improvement, that representation, that these things are antidotes to anti-black racism, right, that really misses the real causes of anti-Black racism. Uh, But this sort of, this international dimension of racial uplift politics is also based on an assumption that national identity did not close off diasporic belonging. In fact, it's actually premised on a potentially very subversive idea that the fates of African-Americans and Haitians, that the fates of Black America
2: and Haiti were linked, right? Potentially, that's a very subversive idea.
0: And, you know, kind of going on to, you know, another kind of big uh, black intellectual during this time period, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is someone that you also speak about. And, you know, I really found his views on the U.S. occupation of Haiti, which you've mentioned uh, before, very interesting, especially when you kind of contrast those. Um, what. Or I should say, contrast what we usually think about Du Bois to Booker T. Washington as you know two people who are constantly in conflict. And one of the things that I kind of really found surprising, um, not knowing this history uh, before reading your book, was that you know you would think Du Bois would kind of be right from the start, you know, the US should not be meddling in Haiti and all of these things. And you are you kind of are shedding the light saying, uh, not so much. You know, this as in all things that you're looking at is much more complicated. And so can you give our listeners an idea of like what's going on here and how Du Bois's own uh ideas about Haiti and the Haitian occupation to kind of change over time?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh
2: so you're right. In in that that is the logical uh sort of a presumption that we
1: scholars also lay people would have that the boys immediately would say no to the occupation uh but you know that that just wasn't the case right uh the occupation we we know really begins on it, it's it is based in the racism of very influential U.S. politicians, including the president of the time, Woodrow Wilson. It is based on the interests of U.S. capital. The National City Bank of New York uh, essentially owns uh, uh, the National Bank of Haiti, right? It is based on U.S. imperialism. It's based on strategic interests, right? The U.S. Uh, Navy is very concerned with potential uh, German encroachments in the Caribbean uh, during the World War I era. So it's based on
2: all that. And black intellectuals uh they they see some nuance there. Uh
1: they many of them, including W.B. Du Bois, wonder at the outset whether uh potential U.S. intervention may stabilize uh Haitian politics in what was a very tumultuous era for Haitian politics. Uh, some of them wonder uh if It potentially a U.S. intervention in Haiti may be an opportunity for African-Americans, right? If they direct this U.S. intervention, uh, well, then maybe they can make it effective and productive for Haitians rather than detrimental. Maybe they can affirm their place in U.S. politics and public life at a time where, uh, of course, Woodrow Wilson is closing off opportunities for uh, African Americans in US politics and public life, right? Uh, so there's a lot of ambivalence, right? Uh Al Du Bois, to your point, he 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 changes his tune on the occupation, right? Uh by certainly by 1920, due to Haitian resistance to the occupation, due to uh, African American investigations of the occupation, due to his contacts with uh, uh, Haitian activists, uh, he, he comes around uh, and builds an understanding of uh, just how devastating the occupation of Haiti was. Uh, he really begins to understand uh, that this occupation in no way is benefiting Haiti, that the U.S. is censoring the Haitian press, that it's instituting forced labor in Haiti, that it has rewrote the Haitian constitution, uh, to make that constitution, uh, conducive to U S, uh, capital, right. It allows foreign property ownership in Haiti, for example, uh, Du Bois comes around to an understanding of how the U S Marines are killing thousands of Haitians. Right. Uh, and he, he becomes very vocal about, uh, all of these things, uh, most notably in the crisis, and as he becomes a spokesman for the anti-occupation cause, uh, he really positions Haiti at the center of a very expansive and very radical understanding of uh, Black liberation, right? The Haitian struggle against the occupation is an anti-racist struggle. It's an anti-capitalist struggle. It's an anti-imperial struggle. Uh, so as Du Bois espouses these internationalist politics in common cause and solidarity with Haiti. He's espousing, uh, you know, what, what I try to show as this, uh, radical black internationalism that, uh, of course extends far beyond the boys, but of which Haiti is a, it's a cornerstone.
0: And so, you know, we've kind of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of had something in my throat there. Let me start that over. <clears throat> And so, you know, we have this great book in front of us. You know, we've given the the listeners, you know, an idea of what this history looks like. And I think, you know, for some of the listeners, you know, they might not have had any idea that any of this was going on. And I think, you know, this is a very kind of highly readable book, in my opinion, uh, and will really be an eye opener. And so, you know, I really encourage our listeners to go out and buy this again. It's the Black Republic African Americans and the fate of Haiti, and so can you give our listeners an idea of what you might be working on after this book and I know it's just coming out, so if you want to tell me that i 'm just taking a break for a little bit, that is a completely fine answer
1: <laughs> so up next um, i'm working on a uh, a family history uh, so one of the Main figures in uh, the Black Republic is James Theodore Holly, who leads a mass migration of uh, African Americans to Haiti uh, during the 1860s. Once in Haiti, he becomes a Haitian citizen uh, and uh, he also uh, becomes the first Black bishop of the Episcopal Church. Uh, so this history will begin with James Theodore Holly uh, and his brother. Uh, move to uh, two of James Theodore Holly's children who become uh, prominent Black intellectuals and activists in their own right. Uh, they become Garveyites, for example, uh, and end with uh, one of James Thierry Holly's grandchildren who becomes a, uh, a influential agronomist in post-occupation hate. Uh, so it's a family history that uh, I really hope to get at uh, Uh, is sort of broader social history of uh, migration uh international internationalist politics uh to get at a uh a really uh dynamic and uh dialogic history uh between haiti and the atlantic world uh so it's a book that i'm excited about you know it's a little ways off but uh Uh, Hopefully, uh, folks can uh, hang tight and, uh, you know, maintain some interest in my writing.
0: Well, I'm sure that they'll be mulling over this book for a little while. And then, you know, once you have that book out, I'm sure we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, uh, thank you very much for coming onto the program today, Dr. Bird.
1: All right. Well, thank you,
0: Derek. I really appreciate
1: it.